0: Find a location near you at slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process.
0: Well, if you've ever been blue, you know how a war
1: I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Sheldon Epps, whose new book is titled My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater, where he shares the story of his long and successful career, during which he has often been the first, one of the few, or even the only person of color to reach various levels of achievement in the world of theater. At the center of the book are the two decades Sheldon Epps served as the artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, one of the oldest and most well known regional theaters in America, and at the time Sheldon took that job, it was also one of the widest. How he met the many challenges of revitalizing that somewhat faded theater company and transforming both its audience and its programming could not be more timely or instructive as theater companies nationwide struggle with these same issues. I found this conversation with Sheldon to be so interesting and delightful that I didn't want you to miss any of it. Over the next three weeks, you will hear about Sheldon's very prolific directing career off-Broadway and at theaters across the country, and especially the two hit musicals he created, Blues in the Night and Play On, that took him to Broadway, London's West End, and around the world. Today, we start at the beginning of the story, with his childhood in Teaneck, New Jersey, and the inspiration he found in the Broadway musicals of the 1960s and 70s. This episode is made possible in part by the generous support of producer-level patrons Paula and Steve Reynolds. And if you too would like to help support Broadway Nation, there will be information about how to do that at the end of the podcast. Here we go! Welcome, Sheldon Epps. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Nation today to talk about your new book, My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater.
0: Thank you, David. It's good to see you again. Great to be with you.
1: Great to see you as well. So how do you describe this book? Is it a memoir? Is it an autobiography? How do you define it?
0: Someone told me that the difference between a memoir and an autobiography is that a memoir is about a more select period of time, and an autobiography covers the whole territory. So it's a memoir because it's really about my experiences as artistic director at Pasadena Playhouse and all of the things that got me to that position, but then my time there. So my autobiography, I guess, is yet to be written because hopefully there has been and there will be some other things following my tenure there.
1: You're not down yet. (laughs) Hope not. (laughs) Speaking of which, I love the way you quote musical theater lyrics all the way through your book at various times, very appropriately.
0: Well, you know, I'm like you, I'm a real Broadway baby, and the result of listening to cast albums endlessly, especially when I was younger. So those things sort of rattle around in my head to be pulled up appropriately.
1: So you certainly have a very distinctive and unfortunately very unique story to tell, You have a very successful career in the American theater, and you've often been, as you say, one of the few or the first or sometimes the only person of color to hold many different positions of leadership during that time. What was it that inspired you to tell that story now?
0: Well, it was exactly that. That was a unique position in the American theater. Fortunately, not as unique currently as it was 25 years ago, when it is not hyperbole to say that I was one of the few or sometimes the only Black artistic director of a major American theater. And there were certain challenges, frustrations, barriers that I faced, given that certain opportunities and triumphs and joys as well, but certainly obstacles that I face That I wanted to write about, number one, to call it out clearly, because some of those have been denied by our field for so long. But also as, I hope, an inspiration to others who want to do this work, who want to be leaders of theaters, who want to establish theaters, to say, you too can do it. You too can face those obstacles, face those prejudices, those assumptions about you as a person of color and overcome them and follow your own path, find your own direction and do all of the things that you want and need to do that your passion is driving you to do.
1: I also think it's very helpful to see that this is not the first time these issues are being faced. What we're going through right now in the American theater, you've been fighting this battle and others like you for a long time.
0: Yes, for decades, decades. You know, there was a big explosion of conversations about race in the American theater in 2020 that grew out of the Black Lives Matter movement. That is partially what inspired the book, those conversations. And my feeling that, unfortunately, I was hearing many things during those conversations that I've been saying, not just for years, but decades before at TCG conferences or on panels and all of that, and had to call out a few people on <laughs> Zoom boxes who said, well, you know, we didn't know any of this. We'd never heard all of this before. And I have to say, I personally said this to you 25 years ago. So you cannot deny that this is not existed that it's been covered up, that it's been buried, and that we just haven't dealt with it. Fortunately, I believe that all of those conversations that took place during that year have really started some definitive change and some action beyond words.
1: Absolutely. Also, one of the big joys of this book for me was to vicariously share your love and passion for such a wide range of theater. Plays and musicals, classics and new works, you seem to love them all equally.
0: Yes, I started, as I think you did as well, I started going to the theater very, very young. We moved with my family from Los Angeles. To Teaneck, New Jersey, when I was 10 years old. It was sort of world shattering and culture shock and all of that. And suddenly went from an all black neighborhood to being the only black kid in many classes in a predominantly Jewish community. So I was learning about a new culture and new languages and new foods and new holidays and all of that. So I was pretty shaken up. And one of the things that my mother did to sort of give me brief vacations from all of that sores, you see? One of those words (laughs) I learned was to uh, take me to see Broadway musicals. Very early on, I was going to see the original production of Hello, Dolly and Sammy Davis Jr. in Golden Boy and Leslie Uggams in Hallelujah Baby and Man of La Mancha and all of those, you know, great classic American musicals. But then I developed a habit of going on my own without my mother. (laughs) So I just started going to see anything and everything from Shakespeare to August Wilson Plays to Noel Coward to Tom Stoppard. And mainly, I think I was attracted, because many of those times I didn't know who those people were, I was mainly attracted by the artwork, which is interesting. If a show had a great poster, I'd say, oh, that's something I'd like to see.
1: I understand that. I remember yeah. going to the library at school and getting the New York Times and seeing those full-page ads for right. whatever the, the musicals were and just yeah. being captivated.
0: Yeah, when the New York Times had that really great arts and leisure section, right? And yeah, you'd see exactly. All of those pages of ads for the theater and what was coming and what was playing, it was... You know, like being Alice in Wonderland, just to go through the paper every Sunday.
1: Well, I'm so jealous of you, because you got to go there. You got to go to (laughs) Wonderland.
0: (laughs) I did, I did. Out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers, way out there beyond this slick town, Barnaby. There's a slick town, Barnaby, out there, full of shine and full of sparkle. Close your eyes and see it glisten, Barnaby. Listen, Barnaby.
1: I was stuck in Cincinnati. Uh, <laughs> I got my share of culture there as well, because it was also a great arts town. But to be able to just take that trip across the river to New York and see, as you say, hundreds of shows during that
0: period. Yeah, I was so lucky. And the big thing that made it possible was, and this is really telling you how long ago it was, I could get a seat in the balcony for $4.75 or $5. You can't even get a glass of water in a <laughs> The Broadway theater now for $5. So that's what made it possible was I was just able to save up my allowance and some bus money and get across the bridge to New York and see all those wonderful things.
1: And it also happened to be that period where there was a tremendous amount of Black actors on Broadway, Black performers. What years would you say this is? So Hello Dolly was your first show, so that's 60...
0: 64, yeah, because we moved in 64, so it was soon after we moved. There was Golden Boy, there was Hallelujah Baby, then and of course, that great smart transition that David Merrick did with the Pearl Bailey company of Hello Dolly, which really was an epiphany for me to see all of those beautiful, beautiful Black people in those fabulous costumes and that beautiful scenery. Paris, the world is a smile. That you on brand new down
1: to your top.
0: don't cry on the valises we haven't missed the train thank the lord lovely you're improving now get all 11 pieces we're seven minutes late all aboard, all aboard. You know, there was something about it, David, that went beyond the theatricality of it, which was great, to a deeper meaning for me as a young black kid. Because I saw all these people on stage just owning the situation, completely in control and powerful and being celebrated and celebrated for their beauty, for their blackness. Beyond the fact that it was entertaining, it really hit me emotionally and gave me the power to dream. Not that I necessarily was dreaming of being on a Broadway stage. I wasn't yet. But I knew that those people had struggled to get there and overcome huge obstacles. And that just gave me a kind of inspiration that I carried with me through those difficult junior high school and high school years.
1: So during those years, even though you're being inspired by the theater, you are not thinking of going into the theater. You are thinking of being a lawyer. Is that what your career starts off to be?
0: Yes, probably inspired more by Perry Mason or The Defendants, I think, or Defenders was the name of the TV series. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Which many people have said is equally as theatrical as being an actor. But also during those years, because I was looking for a community, a place to be, I started drifting towards the drama club and doing plays and musicals in junior high school and high school, and mainly as a hobby, as something to do and to have a community, a community where I was welcome. And also because I'd always loved music and language. So I drifted into the drama clubs. And really, it wasn't until my senior year that I said, you know, I think this something I really want to do as a career. Fortunately, my parents said, okay, as long as you go to college and get a degree. And that led me to Carnegie Mellon University.
1: One of my favorite questions is what roles did you play in high school?
0: Well, that's a good question for me because the answer is unexpected. Actually, I started out, the first play that I did in ninth grade was Our Town, And surprisingly, I played the stage manager. I probably had no idea what the play was about or what I was talking about, but I got through it somehow. I later played, oh, I can't even remember the character's name, but he's the manservant in Finian's Rainbow who comes on slowly with the drink. And I did the Begat number in that musical. Then I stepped up to really big roles because I played Mordred in Camelot. My big starring role in senior year of high school was, wait for it, <laughs> I played Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Speaking of the first, perhaps the first black person who actually play. Henry Higgins and My Fair Lady.
1: You talk about that in the book so effectively and interestingly how the whole show is double cast, as I remember, except for you. You're the only one in that high school who can play Henry Higgins.
0: Yes, yes. We had a wonderful, I think he was actually an English teacher, but he was a theater lover. John Brancato was his name, who uh, directed the Spring Musical every year. And we had a very, very talented and gifted class of people who acted and sang and danced and all of that. So many that Mr. Brancader decided that he was going to double cast My Fair Lady. So there were two Elizas, two Doolittles, two of all of the other characters. And as he was making the announcement about who was going to be double cast in all of those roles, he went through the whole cast and he started to walk away. And he said, oh, I forgot something. He said, Sheldon Epps is going to play Henry Higgins for all of the performances and be the only Henry Higgins. So uh, it was kind of a stunning, dramatic moment from him, but also a stunning and dramatic moment moment for me because by that time I thought, okay, I'm just going to be one of the buskers behind Doolittle, you know? Right. And so there I was anointed as Henry Higgins.
1: Well, he certainly understood show business because he knew how to make an effect with that yes. announcement. <laughs> yes,
0: indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah.
1: So by the time you're Henry Higgins, you are starting to think, I want to do this professionally. And are your
0: parents supportive of that? Wonderfully so. They always were parents who said to all of us, my brother and my sister, you can do anything you want to do. Mine was probably the first generation where black parents were saying to their children, you could even be president of the United States. Now, maybe that was a little ill-timed because they were a little ahead of the curve, but it wasn't too far behind me that someone of my color actually became president of the United States. So we were encouraged to dream big, to have big ambitions and to know, number one, what we wanted to do and to go after it. So, yeah, I just announced to them that I was giving up the trial lawyer ambition and wanted to be an actor. And I think they were kind of stunned for a moment. But by then they'd seen me in plays and they knew I was pretty good. So they said, yes, you can do that. But you can't just go across the river and study at HB Studios or American Academy or AMDA or any of the schools. You have to go and get a college degree. And though I may have bristled at that a little bit, that turned out to be very, very good advice. And as I said, I went to Carnegie Mellon University, which was a tremendous training program tough, hard, but wonderful, and has given me things that I still use every day of my life.
1: You certainly ended up at one of the top training programs of that moment and still to this day. But yes at that moment, it was on the cutting edge of theater training, I would say.
0: Yes, absolutely. One of, if not the oldest professional training program at a university then and now, obviously, but was renowned even then for producing great people, Bill Ball, Rene Auberjonois, Seda Thompson. And when I was a freshman, Judith Light was a senior, Ted Danson was a senior, Cherry Jones was not too far behind me and lots of others. So a wonderful, terrific school. But especially at that time, it was tough. I started with 40 people in my class and I graduated with seven. So between those who were asked to leave and those who decided to leave, that's a measure of how tough it was to get through the program.
1: University programs at that time sort of prided themselves on being that selective and that tough. What do you think you got from that? And what were the negative aspects of that?
0: Well, I'll start with the negative aspects, which is it was incredibly stressful. There's no that at the end of every year, at very least, and sometimes at the end of the semester, you had to be invited to come back, was really stressful. And, you know, for people who were teenagers, (laughs) that's an incredible amount of stress to deal with and makes you tight. And if anything, makes you shut down. On the other hand, a lot of it was based just on discipline. You had to go to class every day. You couldn't skip classes and you could be asked to leave for just not attending classes. So it gave you discipline. But it also gave me a kind of... Of tenacity and a kind of strength and a kind of arrogance, <laughs> I suppose, a kind of artistic arrogance that has been valuable for me.
1: Especially as one of those who survived
0: to the end. Exactly. One of those who survived and, again, as one of the first actors of color to graduate from the program, not the first, but one of the first people of color to graduate and to get through this tough classical training program. And the training was very classically based. When people were saying, oh, you can't do it, you won't make it, you're going to get asked to leave, you know, it gave me kind of tenacity and arrogance and ultimately confidence because I did survive it, you know, I did make it, I did graduate.
1: Out of this, even while you're still in school, you jump into a professional performing career, interestingly enough, with a musical. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, though the training at Carnegie was not a musical theater program, they do now have a musical theater option. I did do some musicals in school and also just loved singing. So I would sneak into practice room with a buddy who played the piano and would just spend hours and hours singing songs from Broadway shows. You know, I kept up with vocal training the whole time. And there was something at that time through Theatre Communications Group, national auditions for most of the major Lord Theatres. And again, it was highly competitive. There were people from all of the major training programs, Yale, NYU, Northwestern, went to Chicago to audition. And I auditioned. I was one of the chosen few to go to Chicago for that set of auditions. Out of that, I was hired to do Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris at the Alley Theatre and actually left in my senior year. I think I left in April. I did graduate, though I did not go to graduation ceremony because I was often working at the alley in Jacques Brel, which was another education. You know, I had no idea who Jacques Brel was and what all those songs were about, but got a quick education because I was in a cast of people who had all of them done the show before, either in New York or Chicago. So I had a lot of catching up to do.
1: And this was in that wave when that show, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, really swept America, it became a yeah. giant hit off-Broadway, one of the longest running off-Broadway shows at that time, and I think still to this day is on the yeah. list, and then was produced by every regional theater in America. Yeah, Almost literally. Yeah, like,
0: oddly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Given the material and given that weird title, you know, somehow it was produced over and over and over again in regional theaters. Marathon. Marathon Mara Mara Marathon Join us now we're on a marathon we're always dancing when the music plays. Join us now, we're on a marathon. Dancing, dancing through the nights and days. And because I've done the show and knew the material, that became sort of bread and butter for me for several years. And I did several other productions. It was a kind of rotating repertory company of people who had done the show. Sure. <laughs> Part of that was probably economic because people could have shorter rehearsal periods, you know, two weeks instead of four or whatever.
1: Because you're basically just putting the show back together with yeah. cast members you've done it before.
0: Exactly. So I ended up doing that for several productions, along with the journeyman actor's career of doing commercials here and there, small parts on soap operas. I did, you'll appreciate this, I did a pretty astounding production, not artistically, but just in that it happened. An astounding production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at Paper Mill Playhouse, where I played Pac and Mickey Rooney played Bob. <laughs> so that was that was kind of a crazy thrill. So yeah, I had a pretty good acting career going.
1: And that acting career leads you to directing. Mara, Mara,
0: we are always dancing when the music plays.
1: Don't go away, Mara. Sheldon and I will be right back. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active.
0: Do it today!
1: That acting career leads you to directing, but how do we get there?
0: Well, despite the fact that I was working, as I said, it was a tough path as an actor and particularly as a Black actor at that time. This would have been in the mid-70s after I graduated in 73. And a classically trained Black actor, even (laughs) though I did that Midsummer Night's Dream, there were a lot of doors that were closed. You know, this was well ahead of non-traditional casting movement. So, you know, I find myself not able to audition for a lot of things, not being asked to audition or being dismissed quickly. So I felt like I just didn't have very much control over my career and also just did not like auditioning. <laughs> who does? Exactly. But, you know, I was not fond of auditioning, and I certainly was not fond of auditioning for people who I thought were not as smart as I was. <laughs> I got together with four friends that I've been to Carnegie with, and we opened a theater called The Production Company on West 18th Street in Chelsea between 7th and 8th. And really, I joined the company, was one of the founders of the company. Because it was a place where I could act a role I wanted to act. I could go to this group of us and say, here's a play that I want to do. And everybody else was allowed that same freedom. And so I did plays there as an actor first. But the director of us was a really brilliant young man named Norman René, who went on to a great career, primarily with Craig Lucas. And they did Marry Me a Little Together and Prelude to a Kiss and Blue Window. And Norman came to me and said, you know, when I'm directing you and we disagree, agree about something. I would never admit it at the moment, but I usually think you're right. And you may notice that I come back around to what you've said and I claim it's my idea, (laughs) which is what we frequently do as directors. Absolutely. (laughs) So he said, I think you ought to try directing. I think you think, like a director, you should do that. It'll be easier for you to do it and for us to argue than the strangers we have coming in who often disappoint us. With my Shakespearean background and my background with Midsummer Night's Dream, I very modestly did a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in this tiny little space at the production company.
1: You just pick something very easy. Easy to do.
0: this' your first venture. Very easy. But listen, I was smart enough because it was a play that I knew well, yeah, and a play that I had great affinity for, and I pulled it off somehow. You know, in this tiny space, we really made a magical production of *Midsummer Night's Dream*, and so I continued to direct there at the production company, but also started direct at other theaters: Manhattan Theater Club, Playwrights Horizons, Phoenix. There was still the Phoenix Theater Company, and found myself having a career as a director. Not having to audition, which I liked. And so I don't remember making a firm decision, but I suddenly realized that I was a director and that's what I was doing for my livelihood and was making a living. So I never turned back from that.
1: It's so interesting how that happens. You go down a path and suddenly you realize, oh, I'm not an actor anymore. I'm not a dancer. Did you mourn that in any way or it just seemed natural and inevitable?
0: Yeah, I didn't mourn it at all, David. I guess actually I felt released <laughs> in a certain way and at home in what I was doing. I didn't miss acting. As I said, I certainly didn't miss auditioning. I love actors. I love working with actors, but there was something about that repetition from night to night that didn't feed me in the way that it fed other people. I was interested in the the putting it together and how you make that stack of papers live and breathe as a play and figuring all of that out and putting the pieces together. You know, I was very happy with directing and getting a show to opening night and then not having to be there every single night.
1: (laughs) I identify with that so strongly. (laughs) Same thing. Yeah. So I remember the production company very well It was a hot company in its day And turned out a number of hits And a show that you create there Becomes one of its biggest hits My
0: mama done told me When I was in pigtails My mama done told me give you the big eye, but when the sweet talking's done, a man is a two-face, a worrisome thing, who'll leave you to sing the blue
1: But it starts out just to be a cabaret production. Is that true?
0: That's exactly right. We very cleverly came up with the idea that we could not quite double, but, you know, we could bring in more box office if we did late night cabaret shows, if we followed whatever the main production on the stage was with a 11 o'clock show late at night. What we had not realized was because the theater was so small, there was no place to put anything. So we couldn't strike the set. We couldn't strike the furniture and all of that. Somebody suggested, I can't remember if it was me or Norman or somebody else, but somebody suggested, well, let's just use the set rather than just dragging four stools out there and plopping them down. You know, let's try to make the set a character in the show. And we started to do that. And as I said, Norman did Marry Me a Little. That's the way that show was born. I did a show called Disgustingly Rich on the set of an old coward play with Coward songs and Cole Porter and all that wonderfully sophisticated material. And I think the season after that, and I can't even remember the name of the play, though I think the name of the play was Nightingale. We were doing a play about jazz musicians. And so there was an area with live jazz musicians. And then there were three separate areas or what I conceived to be three separate areas. So I said, well, I'm going to do something with blues and jazz music. And I'm going to use these three areas as three rooms in a hotel and the bandstand as the band in the basement of this hotel and try to define the characters of these three women and the piano player through these blues and jazz songs and hope to get through seven performances (laughs) with with something that makes sense and so we opened that show and that show is called blues in the night and people are still doing it it's opening out here in california next month actually amazing
1: practicality of what inspired that. I find that so interesting that that's what defines the show and what makes the show so unique, ultimately. You yeah. All those limitations become something that actually makes the show successful. That's exactly right. You have this unique concept with it.
0: Right. It was it was definitely necessity is the mother of invention. We could not move everything that was there, so we had to use it. And you had to come up with ideas that made sense for that physical environment. And by the way, some of them were terrible. So, They didn't all work, but there were several that did, and Marry Me a Little and Blues in the Night being the prime example of two that did work very well and actually went on to much longer life. Blues in the Night moved to Broadway eventually and won a Tony nomination, and though it did not run for long, it was nominated for a Tony and then was done in London with great success, and that sort of really gave the show its longer life.
1: When puts you on the map as a director, because you go all over the world with the show and all over America, after the attention it gets from the Tony Awards, and however that happens, as you say in the book, part of it is the luck of the season that it was in. It got nominated. And I also appreciate the candor you have in the book in talking about how the Broadway production was not everything you desired it to be. And you were able to take that and build on that and improve the show, even as you went to London and other places.
0: Yes. That's absolutely true. You know, so often when things are done on Broadway and don't have a long run, you'll blame it on other things, you know, well, it was the marketing or was the wrong time of year to open and all those things could be true. But you also have to say, but was the show good enough? Was the show all that it could be? And what would I have done differently? If I had the chance to do it again, what would I do differently? Well, that's a great question. And all too often people don't have the chance to do it again. I would was very lucky because the show was nominated for the Tony Award that I got that chance and actually there was first a national tour with Dela Reese who had great ideas about the show and about the music that were hugely helpful. Really as a result of the success of that tour we were invited to do it at the Donmar Warehouse in London. From Natchez to Mobile, from Memphis to South. which interestingly was a very similar physical environment to the tiny little production company. But that was really where I had the chance to refine the show, to write some new things for it, some connecting dialogue, which was very helpful. Redo some of the orchestrations and arrangements. But to really get it right, in some ways, the Broadway production was the workshop towards the eventual (laughs) London production, which really took off and moved from the Donmar Warehouse to the Piccadilly Theatre and ran for a year. That's when so many other theaters in America came calling, because as you know, we have that Anglophile bent that makes us say, well, if it was a success in London, then we should do it too.
1: It must be good. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I want to take you back to the Broadway production one second, because the star of that production was one of those people that you saw on Broadway as a child. What was that like?
0: Yeah, one of the shows that I saw in those early days of theater going was Hallelujah Baby with Leslie Uggams. From my perch up there in the second balcony, you know, I just fell in love with her. She was so beautiful and so charming and witty and clever and, you know, sang like nobody sang, just this great, great voice. So I had huge crush on her. So years later, when we were casting the Broadway production of Blues in the Night, you know, you have that wish list conversation. And I said, well, God, if I could get Leslie Uggams to play this one role, I'd just be in heaven. Well, several weeks later, I was in heaven because <laughs> Leslie Uggams walked into the room, still looking as beautiful as ever, singing as well as ever, still singing as well as ever, even now. And that was the beginning of a long, long relationship with Leslie and worked with her several times over the next 30 years and still have as big a crush on her now as I ever did because she's just a great, great lady as well as a superb performer. I got the four
1: walls, one dirty window blue.
0: I got the four
1: walls, one dirty window blue. If I'd saved my money when I was young and doing well, I wouldn't be here singing in this cheap hotel. I got the four walls, one dirty window blue. Sheldon and I will be back next week with more of his journey in the American theater, which will take him to the Old Globe Theater in San Diego and then to the Pasadena Playhouse, where during his two decades there, he was one of the few and at times the only black artistic director of a major American theater company. The challenges and frustrations, along with the rewards and opportunities that he found along the way, makes for quite a story. And speaking of San Diego, that production of Blues in the Night that Sheldon mentioned a few moments ago is currently playing at the North Coast Repertory Theater, where it's been extended through February 12th. I know I have a lot of listeners in Southern California, and I encourage you to go check it out. If you're a fan of this podcast, I invite you to become a patron of the show. For a contribution of just $7 a month, you can receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of many of the discussions that I have with my guests. In fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the edited versions of the podcast. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans, that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons. Patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. And if you're particularly enthusiastic about Broadway Nation, there are additional patron levels that come with even more benefits. To join, go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot tech. Or you can find the link in the show notes to this episode, or in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, which I also invite you to join. Broadway nation is written and produced by me David Armstrong special thanks to Powell's Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway podcast Network
0: when I was I myself together i give it one more try but I'm sitting here
1: drinking thinking of
0: I got it,